The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Good to be here with you this morning. Uh, it is good to be back in the pulpit. Um, I can't speak for Ben, but I think I can say that uh, when we step away for a few weeks from time to time for a study break or for missions month, uh, it's always a good time to remember what a privilege it is uh, to get to come and study and proclaim the Word of God with you week in and week out. And I can say it's especially a privilege to get to do it with someone as gifted and thoughtful as Ben. So thank you for giving us that responsibility and privilege and truly joy. Um, but it is, it is good to be here, and I want to welcome you this morning in the name of Jesus, whether you're a visitor or a member or tuning in on the live stream. And uh, I don't know if you took notice of this, but this past week, this past Tuesday, March 6th, was the two-year anniversary of when we marched on out of 14401 down to this location. It has been two full years since we sold half our stuff, sold our building, uh, packed up, and came on down and walked into this beautiful orange carpeted room <laughs> that we so love and appreciate and began to worship in this space. So I just want you to take a moment to, to look around and, and to take it in and to hear these three words, God is faithful. God is faithful when you are on top of the mountain looking down into the promised land, when you are down in death's valley and you can't see over the ridge. In every situation, God has been faithful to us. He's been faithful here, and I believe he's going to be faithful to lead us to 21477 Northwestern Avenue this summer. Uh, so take a moment and remember that God is faithful. Uh, but this morning we are continuing our sermon series called Lent, the Cruciform Life. And we are going to be spending these last few weeks of the season of Lent exploring the question of how was Jesus' life shaped by its ending, the cross, and in turn, how are our lives shaped by that very cross? And so we're going to ask that question this morning in the context of cruciform love. And we're going to do that in John chapter 3. So let me just read our text one more time this morning. Kason, you did a wonderful job. Let's dive back in in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not condemned. The one who does not believe has been condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Now this is the basis for judging, that the light has come into the world, 
and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil deeds hates the light and does not come to the light so that their deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that it may be plainly evident that his deeds have been done in God. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning, the Father of heavenly lights, and we ask you to continue to move us as a people from darkness to light. God, move us from darkness to light so that we may do those deeds that you have prepared in advance for us by your grace, Lord. Help us to see more clearly the image of the Son of God lifted up so that we might believe and have eternal life. God, I ask for the gift of preaching this morning, and I ask that you would give us the gift of your Holy Spirit's illumination, that your word would speak truth to us. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray these things. Amen. Uh, There's an episode of the TV show Friends called The One Where Old Yeller Dies. And if you haven't seen the show, there's a character named Phoebe who apparently has never seen the endings of sad movies. Uh, So when Phoebe was growing up, her mom, in order to shield her kids from pain and suffering, apparently would shut off sad movies right before it got to the worst part, right before it got to the grim, gruesome details of the story. And so you can imagine Phoebe as an adult giving her synopsis of the movie Old Yeller, and she says, Happy family finds a dog, frontier fun. (laughs) That's all that Phoebe knows of Old Yeller. And you can imagine her horrific surprise when she walks in on her friends watching the real ending of Old Yeller. You know, the ending where the dog is shot by the owner. And of course, Phoebe is incredibly terrified and taken aback by this because she's only known the version of the story without those sad, difficult, gruesome details. And so this morning, we are spending time in perhaps the most popular verse in our Bibles. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, you can say it with me, that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You know, we've seen this, this verse plastered on billboards, crocheted on pillows, painted under the eyes of NFL players. We've seen it everywhere, and and it's a very popular verse for good reason. It's a great little summary of the gospel story. But I've been wondering if it's also so popular precisely because it is one of those kind of neat, tidy, cleaner summaries of the gospel story. In that it doesn't have to mention some of the more gruesome, grim details of the gospel story. It talks about the giving and sending of the son, but not of the son dying. 
I've wondered if, if maybe part of its popularity is because we've wanted a gospel that is neat and tidy and clean. We've wanted an old yeller without the dead dog. We've wanted a gospel without a crucified Messiah. And so I want to spend just a few moments this morning exploring how that idea is actually not just unfaithful to the gospel as a whole, but unfaithful to John 3.16 itself. So let's do that by jumping back into verse 14, where it says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If you've been paying close attention, you might recognize Jesus in verses 14 and 15 referencing the text that Kelsey spoke about right before communion. Uh, That Jesus is recalling God's offer of salvation to the Israelites through that bronze serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. Uh, That God told Moses to lift up this bronze serpent And the Israelites, in acknowledging their sin, can look to that serpent and receive healing, receive salvation. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so what we need to know from the Gospel of John is that this is Jesus' language to talk about the cross. When Jesus says in John throughout the entire gospel, the Son of Man being lifted up, that is his code word for talking about the crucifixion itself. And so what we find here in the connection between verses 14 and 15 and verse 16 is that God's love is not just given, it's cruciform. God's love in John 3.16 is not just this given love. It is a given love that gives all the way to the cross. It is a cruciform love. You know that word for and for God so loved the world? We could actually use that word to kind of translate this passage in that what I'm saying is in the same way God loved the world by sending his son. So in the same way that that Jesus was lifted up, God sent him to be given all the way to that lifting up on the cross. God's love in John 3 is not just a clean, neat, tidy, given love. It is also a gruesome, painful, even dark, cruciform love. But how on earth could that possibly be? You know, how on earth can we possibly point to Jesus Christ on the cross and say, God's love? How on earth can we possibly point to a half-naked man being tortured to death on a cross and say, for God so loved the world? I appreciated Ben's sermon last week on cruciform wisdom. 
And I also appreciated a specific comparison that he made between the cross and the electric chair. And maybe you've, you've drawn that comparison before because I think it's helpful because it kind of updates the crucifixion for us in, into a kind of a more modern form of, of capital punishment. And so it kind of frees us from, it jars loose the crucifixion and brings it to today. But I actually think the contrasts between the cross and the electric chair can be just as much, if not more, telling about the cross. For instance... Whatever we might think of the electric chair, it was at least designed with the intent of being a relatively quick and painless and humane way of killing someone. Whatever we might think about it, it was designed at least to do the job quickly and and somewhat painlessly. Not so with the cross. The cross was specifically designed to draw out pain and suffering for as long as humanly possible. The cross was specifically designed to make it as excruciating and painful as long as it could. Another difference, perhaps even greater, between the cross and the electric chair is that uh, the electric chair happens indoors. Uh, Only a a relatively small cohort of people are selected and allowed to attend that event. And the person being electrocuted is given a hood or a mask. Uh, So they're given at least some little semblance of dignity. Uh, Their face isn't shown or seen. Not so with the cross. The cross was specifically designed to be seen by as many people as possible. The cross is specifically, intentionally, a public execution, a public, even twisted form of entertainment or spectacle. We might say that the cross is death on a jumbotron. And I draw these comparisons and these contrasts to highlight again the the truly scandalous nature of talking about cruciform love. How in the world do we put those two words together? It's it's totally a contradiction of terms, it would seem. It's totally an oxymoron. It's like talking about an open secret or, or a definite maybe or maybe jumbo shrimp. Cruciform love makes about as much sense as those. How do we possibly piece those words together? And yet somehow, the unthinkable has happened. Somehow, the cross has become for us the symbol and image of God's love for the world. How is this possible? Well, I want to spend, spend some time talking about that. And I think right away we need to make an important distinction. And this might seem like it's an inch wide, but it's a mile deep. And that distinction is that the cross is not why God loves us. It is how. 
The cross is not why God loves us. It is how God loves us. Here's what I mean. Here's why I think that's important. There is kind of a a reductionistic, distorted version of the gospel that I think many of us have sort of absorbed over the years. And this version of the story essentially tells us that Jesus had to die in order for God to love us. That in order for, it kind of pits this, this angry father God figure against this innocent, perfect, loving son. And in order for that angry father God to change his mind about us, Jesus had to come and die in order for God to love us. Well, setting aside the problems that that would create for our belief in the Trinity, it actually completely reverses John 3.16. Look at the order of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Notice that Jesus isn't given so that God can love us. Jesus is given because God loves us. Do you see the difference? Jesus isn't given so that God can love us. The cross isn't why God loves us. The cross is how God loves us. Jesus is given because of God's great cruciform love for us. Uh, St. Augustine comments on this passage in John saying, God's love is incomprehensible and unchangeable. For it was not after we were reconciled to him through the blood of his son that he began to love us. Rather, he has loved us before the world was created. The cross is not why God loves us. It is how God loves us. A couple hundred years before the time of Jesus, there was a mathematician named Archimedes. And you might have heard of him. He's he's apparently one of the most uh, important mathematicians of all time. He lived in Greece. And he anticipated modern calculus and uh, did some other important things like approximating pi, 3.14, and the volume of a sphere, all these kind of geometrical proofs. But one of the important things he also did was had to do with levers. So he didn't exactly invent the first lever or pulley, but he explained the mathematical principles underneath levers, and he did apparently invent a compound system of pulleys. And fortunately for me, you don't have to be a mathematician to understand that that's important. You know, from a construction worker to a dock worker, we know that levers and pulleys are, are important parts of being able to lift something that normally a human couldn't lift. Of being able to exploit, essentially, physics to lift an object so heavy that it shouldn't be able to be moved by a person. And so uh, Archimedes became famous for this, and there's actually a phrase attributed to him uh, where he apparently said, give me a place to stand on and I can move the earth. And so people have called this the Archimedean point. Give me a place to stand on and I can move the earth. 
And one of the reasons the cross is such good news to us, one of the reasons that the cross shows to us God's cruciform love is because the cross is the Archimedean point from which God moves the world. When Jesus uses this language of being lifted up, he is talking about being lifted up to the place from which God will move and change and save the world. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he's saying, give me a place to stand on and I can move the earth. That is why Jesus takes the violence of the cross and turns it into our salvation. Little did the Romans know that when they lifted up Jesus on the cross, they were lifting him up to the point from which he would disarm their empire. Little did they know that when they lifted up Jesus to the cross in violent hatred, they had lifted him to the point from which he would undo violence and hatred. He would undo sin and death. That's why the cross is such good news to us. In John chapter 12, Jesus uses this same language. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. It's not that God doesn't have wrath. It's not that God doesn't condemn. It's that God's wrath and God's condemnation is the reverse side of his love. It's a no to everything that is not God, a no to everything that is not good, and a yes to everything that gives all the way in self-sacrificial love for the world. It's a yes to Jesus Christ and cruciform love. Church, cruciform love moves the world. And we believe cruciform love moves the world solely because we have seen cruciform love save the world. So here's the question we've got to ask this morning. If God can take the most violent, awful symbol of the Roman Empire of death and hatred and sin and turn it into his greatest image of love, what in your life is there for which he can't do the same? If God can take death on a jumbotron and turn it into life for the cosmos, what is possibly in your life that God cannot do the very same for? And the answer is there's nothing. There is no sin in your past. There's no suffering in your present that God cannot make the sight of his salvation. On the cross, Jesus has defeated the powers of sin and death. And so here's the good news. Now the empires tremble. 
now the devil is in retreat because they did their very worst to the Son of God and it was merely a flesh wound. Now, sin and death are running scared because they did their very worst to the Messiah and it was merely a glancing blow. And God has taken the wood of that blood-stained cross and He has made it heaven's ladder. That's the good news, church. If he can take the worst image of shame and degradation, of sin and death, and make it his greatest image of love, there's nothing that he cannot do in your life. That is cruciform love, and that's the love we are called to emulate, to respond to, to live out. Will you believe in that love, church? Will you look to the cross, believe, and have eternal life? I pray that you would as we stand this morning and sing.